you'd like to grab your Bibles um, and turn to Isaiah chapter 52, page 740. And just keep a finger in that for a moment. Uh, Rachel will come up and lead uh, us in that reading in a few, not quite yet. I'll just give, give you a few moments of introduction to it uh, before she does. Um, but let me pray for us as we open God's word together. Father God, I pray that you would be here among us as we look at your word. You've invested in it, your revelation of yourself. And we pray that that would be our experience, that we would see you um, by, the, by your work in our lives. Uh, um, and that we would be transformed into your likeness. Amen. I don't know if you know those films that you watch um, where <clears throat> you think you know where the film is going, but there's something that doesn't quite fit. Um, uh, it, it might be, if you're watching Signs, that M. Night Shyamalan film, it's all those glasses of water being left around. Uh, you don't really think of it at the time, uh, but it doesn't quite fit where you think the story's going. Or it might be in Eternal Sunshine of a Spotless Mind, there's quite near the beginning, there's this rather confusing interaction on the street. Uh, between somebody that clearly recognises somebody else. And I'm being a little bit ambiguous because I don't want to ruin these films for you if you haven't seen them. But you know, you know the kind of films I mean where at some point, quite late in the film, there's a twist or there's a bombshell that suddenly makes sense of everything and it changes the way you viewed the things that you thought you understood. Um, I think that uh, the story of the Old Testament is a little bit like that. Uh, prophecy about Jesus is often like that, and I think this, this passage in particular functions like that. Uh, when we think of Jesus fulfilling Old Testament prophecy, uh, sometimes we get into a little bit of a, a sort of checklist approach, don't we? We almost imagine uh, that, uh, that the disciples were going around with clipboards. They had this list of Old Testament prophecies, and they went, okay, uh, born in Bethlehem, tick, uh, descended from David, tick, uh, spent early years in Egypt, tick. And they're going through his life, ticking all the boxes until, until they've got enough and they can go, right, that's the man. He is the Messiah. Now, actually, Matthew kind of does a little bit of that, particularly. That's, that kind of thing does happen a little bit in the Gospels, that sense of this is that. But actually, in some ways, there's another level to Old Testament prophecy as fulfilled in Jesus. And it, it might be that, to think more in terms of Jesus being the obvious development of the story. Uh, Jesus uh, is the continuation, and actually in some ways he is the twist that makes sense of the bits of the story that didn't make sense before. Um, the context of the book of Isaiah, which we're looking at this morning, this particular uh, reading, uh, really is pretty much the darkest moment in the history of the people of Israel. Um, right back towards the start uh, of the Bible, the people of Israel are called out of slavery, rescued with this big show uh, by Yahweh, their God. Um, and they are called to be his vessel of blessing to the world. Um, and, and basically, and, and they're to go to this promised land, this wonderful land of flowing with milk and honey. Um, and, and, and the Old Testament is a story of, of that, that promise, sort of seeming to lose momentum slowly. Um, but by the, by the end, or towards the end of the Old Testament, the people have so rebelled against God, they're back in slavery. 
not in Egypt this time, they're in Babylon. Uh, it's known as the exile. The, uh, the big promises of God of the Old Testament seem to be basically grinding to a halt. Um, how would the story reach its fulfillment? How would all of this be made right again? There's lots of stuff in the Old Testament about this new king that would restore Israel, uh, the Messiah, the Christ. These are all words to describe this king that would restore the kingdom of Israel. Um, And we see lots of that in the Gospels, uh, that people were looking for this king. And when Jesus claimed to be that, there were a whole set of assumptions about what that meant. But it doesn't make sense of everything. It doesn't make sense of everything that you know about what would happen from the Old Testament looking forward. And one of the key bits it doesn't make sense of is this figure called the suffering servant. Um, Now, this is a very awkward, enigmatic figure that appears in the middle of the book of Isaiah. And he's distinctly not very kingly in a lot of ways. How does he fit uh, with this grand sense of kingly restoration? Uh, The reading that we've got this morning is one of the servant songs. These are four songs that appear in the middle of the book of Isaiah. Um, And um, there's a really good Wikipedia page that gives you a good summary of the the, the, uh, servant songs. that gives you a little bit of an insight into the way I prepare my sermons. Not really, not really. Um, the first song happens in Isaiah 42. Um, and we learn that there's this servant uh, who will be God's agent of justice in the world. Um, it's not going to be a big show. It's going to be something much gentler, uh, much, quiet, much more quiet and subversive. Uh, song 2 comes in Isaiah 49. Um, And we see that this servant will call Israel back to God and yet will actually be largely rejected uh, by by Israel. And yet he will also be a light to the Gentiles and kings will in fact fall prostrate before him. He's also uh, compassionate on prisoners, uh, on the hungry. Um, And yet also he will be despised. Song 3 is in chapter 50 of Isaiah. Uh, We learn that he'll be a teacher. He's going to teach about God. um, But he's going to be greatly abused because of his message. But he's going to continue undeterred because God will be his vindication. And then finally, the fourth servant song uh, is what we're going to look at this morning. And I'll invite Rachel up to read it to us. That starts in verse 13 of chapter 52. And as she reads, just keep a note um, of the way in which there are... Pa- no, sorry, you can come up. Oh, you, oh whatever. Um, keep a note of the, of the paragraph spacings um, as she goes. You'll notice it's in five sections, and we'll talk a little bit about that structure afterwards. Okay. Isaiah 52, verse 13 to 53. Verse 12. See, my servant will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. Just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any man and his form marred beyond human likeness. So he will sprinkle many nations 
and kings will shut their mouths because of him. For what they were not told, they will see, and what they have not heard, they will understand. Who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot, and like a root out of dry ground. He has no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. Yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that, was, that brought us peace was upon him and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before his, her shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, And who can speak of his descendants? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people he was stricken. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. He thought, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and to cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge of my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made made intercession for the transgressors. the word of the Lord. Thanks, Rachel. What we see there is a sort of sense of intensification of much of what we've already read about the servant in the previous songs. But it gets a little bit more vivid, doesn't it? That sense of him being beaten, marred beyond recognition. He'll be despised and rejected. He is a man of sorrows. And it'll look like this is God's judgment on him. He'll suffer in silence. He'll be executed. But ultimately, somehow, despite that, he will be vindicated. He will have his inheritance among the great Um, he will be satisfied by the success uh, of what happens. Um, And that'll be because he bore the sin of many. Some slightly confusing ideas thrown into all of that. Um, Now, I just want to show you the structure of, of the poem that we've just looked at. I don't know if you've noticed that generally when we tell stories, they build towards a big climax, towards the end, and then there's a little epilogue. 
afterwards. That's the sort of basic shape of most stories in, in the modern Western world. Whereas in the Hebrew world, stories and poems and literature in general generally focuses towards the very middle. It's called a chiasm, if you want to get technical. Um, uh, you have a center point that is given a focus by having these concentric circles that mirror each other, if that's not a crossing of uh, metaphors. Let me point out those five paragraphs that we basically have in the poem. The first one and the fifth one, which at the end of chapter 52 and the end of chapter 53, um, they talk about the suffering that he will experience, uh, but they put it within this context of vindication and triumph. Kings will prostrate themselves and so on. So those are the outside bits. If you move one in to the, f- the second and the fourth paragraph, so the first bit of chapter 53, um, and then uh, chapter, verse 7 and onwards. Um, it focuses in uh, on the sort of silence, the gentleness, the, the shame, the ridicule of what he's going to go through. And then there's this center section, the peak of the chiasm, the, the, the bit that the poet really wants you to get. And that's this middle section, verses six, uh, 4, 5, and 6. Uh, the very middle verse, verse 5, for he was pierced. For our transgressions, he was crushed. For our iniquities, the punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds, we are healed. That's the, that's the nub for the poet. Everything else really just focuses us towards that idea. The idea of substitution. The idea of somebody being substituted in place of another <clears throat> I don't know if you've ever heard the story of Father Colby, um, who was a Polish priest uh, uh, who was a prisoner at Auschwitz. Um, and at one point, some prisoners escaped, and the Nazis, uh, in reprisal for this, were going to uh, execute by starvation 10 other prisoners. And as they called these 10 prisoners out, one of them broke down and said, My wife, my children, I will never see them again. At which point, a fellow prisoner, Father Colby, steps forward and asks to uh, take the place of that man. And his request is granted, and he did indeed die in his place. What an incredibly noble, uh, heroic thing to happen. And that's the kind of idea that's embodied in this passage. Um, In fact, it evokes something of the Old Testament sacrificial system. Uh, it mentions lambs and sheep, and guilt offerings. There's this sense uh, uh, of the sacrificial system that was right at the centre of Old Testament worship. Um, and we're not going to spend lots of time looking um, at that system, but <clears throat> what we see uh, there is that the sacri- sacrificial system reminded the people of God's love for them, but not in a light, easy way. It's, it reminded them of his, God's infinite longing to be in relationship with them. And yet the barrier to that that was presented by their sin, their persistent rejection of him. 
how could God have integrity, both with his holy justice, uh, which could not be in the presence of evil and injustice and wrongdoing, and yet his, also his holy, never-giving-up love uh, for the people who actually participate in this evil and wrongdoing. It's a deeply unpopular idea, isn't it, um, that we would require such a thing as this kind of substitution. Um, But the Bible does sometimes ask us, especially here, I think, uh, to face the fact that we don't live uh, the way that maybe we should. When we compare ourselves to those guards in Auschwitz, we may look pretty good. But in the same way, when we compare ourselves to a holy, pure, loving God, we look pretty rotten. And here in the servant songs, we see one of the first hints uh, of how God will resolve this dilemma he has. Um, He'll allow the suffering servant to be substituted for his people. Now, there are some difficult ideas in this. And please, if, if, if the things I say this morning throw you, uh, or make you angry, or whatever, just do come and chat. I'd love to, to have the opportunity to chat through with you. I know how some of this stuff sounds. But Jesus comes along um, and, uh, and, comp- and, and completely turns on its, on, on its head the whole idea of, uh, who, of, of how the Old Testament story would progress. There is, on the one hand, this king, but there's also the suffering servant. And he turns out to be both. Um, now, if you, were, if you were reading the uh, servant songs before Jesus came along, there was a huge amount of confusion as to who he could possibly be. Was he actually Israel? Uh, Israel uh, carrying the sins for the world or carrying the sins for previous and following generations? Um, was it, in fact, uh, the prophet himself? Is he the suffering servant? Or is it, in fact, the Messiah? And then Jesus comes along and he shows himself to be the king who would suffer uh, on behalf of his people. Now, Jesus was a good Jew. He would have known these songs very well. He knew Isaiah very well. And he knew that what these songs described was actually ultimately himself. Now, there's a huge amount of allusions to, uh, to these songs in, on the lips of Jesus. We're not going to go through any of them except for one. I'm just going to mention simply, just to give you an example, Mark chapter 10, uh, which has lots of Old Testament allusions, but it says this, the Son of Man did not come to to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus saw himself as the suffering servant who would give his life for his people. That the servant songs would ultimately find their fulfillment at the cross it would be there that the servant Jesus would have laid on him all of God's holy anger at all of the sin and injustice and evil in the world Um, where God would bring together in perfect unity both his holy justice which couldn't tolerate our wrongdoing and his holy love which wouldn't allow him to reject his beloved children. 
And of course, in some ways, this just makes all the sense in the world when you see it. The king had to be the same as the suffering servant. Uh, it, it makes sense of both together. Um, <clears throat> he couldn't be uh, a legitimate... It, it, the, the, the suffering servant, if he was to take on the sins of his people, had to, in some ways, be able to represent them. What better representation of the people than the king himself? Or to put it, the other way, put it another way, there's this sense that how could he truly be the king of a people who, did, who, who still needed saving and ransoming out of captivity? He was the one who saved them, ransomed them, and was their king. So yes, of course, it makes sense. It fits that the king and the suffering servant would be the same person. So suddenly, this, with, with a bit of hindsight, this, these strange songs in the middle of Isaiah, this confusing group of texts, become the, pretty much the centerpiece of how we understand Jesus in the Old Testament. I think that, that Isaiah 53 could be described as the Clapham Junction of the Old Testament. It's the passage that has links all over the Bible, especially into the New Testament. Um, uh, I'm going I'm to rattle off some direct quotes uh, from, uh, from this particular servant song. Uh, just for your notes, Matthew 8, Mark 15, Luke 22, John 12, Acts 8, Romans 10, 1 Peter 2. Uh, I can give those to you at the end if you didn't catch them all. Um, those are the direct quotes. That's not the allusions, that's direct quotes from just this song. This was hugely important in how Jesus understood himself and how all of Jesus' followers understood him. Um, in fact, it's so central, so neat, in fact, uh, that to, for, for the Christian message, that for many years there was this suspicion that the Christians in the first century had just quietly inserted it into the book of Isaiah. Because it just... It was just a bit too neat. It wasn't until the Dead Sea Scrolls, you heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls? All these scrolls that were uncovered at Qumran um, uh, 50-odd years ago. Uh, it was at that point that there was really real proof that these stories, this, that, this, that this passage preceded Jesus by hundreds of years. It's this extraordinary idea. And yet, I understand this is an incredibly controversial idea, not only in terms of how we are to view ourselves, but also as to how we are to understand this, what actually happened on the cross. There's this rather abusive overtone, isn't there? The idea that on the cross, God visited on his own son such violence is something that's pretty repugnant to us. But I think texts like this make it very hard to work around that idea. And I just want to give you a couple of things that help us to understand uh, why, uh, why that's not the best way to look, why this, this abusive element is not the, way, the best way to look at this uh, passage. Firstly, uh, we need to remember how God is, is united God the Father and God the Son are deeply connected. We mustn't separate them as we would an earthly father and son. We remember that they are part of the Godhead, that in the cross God is absorbing into himself uh, all of the wrongdoing and brokenness of the world. And secondly, 
Um, the idea of abuse suggests a victim. And Jesus was no victim. Jesus wasn't even reluctant. Jesus was determined to be the suffering servant. This is an identity he chose, that he recognized and that he owned for himself. Um, And we see this in all sorts of places. I don't know if you remember last week's uh, passage in John 10. Jesus says, no one takes my life from me. I give it up of my own accord. Um, The whole shape of some of the Gospels, particularly of Mark, is built this way. That In the middle of of Mark, um, there's this recognition that Jesus is the king. He is the Messiah. And then Jesus puts this twist. He says, yes, but the king will have to suffer. The king is also the suffering servant. And the second half of the book is built around this long, slow walk to Jerusalem, the place where he would fulfill his destiny as the suffering servant. And it's this metaphor for his determination that he will go to Jerusalem. He will go to the cross. He will, as king, save humanity from their sin by dying the death that they deserved. It's that extraordinary idea that um, is incredibly hard to accept. That something happened to the suffering servant on the cross that should have happened to me. As we approach Christmas amidst the carols and the candlelight, the Christmas trees and the cute little baby Jesus, we need to bear in mind this darker shadow that actually sits over the events of Christmas. That it is about Jesus coming to save from death his people. And that that is something that will cost him his life. And that yet, amidst that, he will see life. He will see resurrection. He will see vindication. And we get to join him in that new restored life. Forgiven and set free. As we sung earlier, uh, Worthy is the lamb who was slain. Worthy is the king who conquered the grave. Let's just take a moment or two to be quiet. Let me read you some words by another poet called Edward Shillito. The other gods were strong, but thou was weak. They rode, but thou didst stumble to a throne. But to our wounds, only God's wounds can speak. And not a God has wounds, but thou alone. Father in heaven, as we move into this season of remembering the coming of Christ... I pray that you would protect us uh, from allowing it just to be cute and pretty, uh, but that you would enable us to see this darkness of, of what Jesus was to go through, and yet the brilliance of light uh, of being set free and restored through the cross uh, as your people. Amen.